Peter chapter 1, and our passage starts in verse 3 and goes to verse 13. While you're turning there, um, I'll just give you some information on this series. We're in a series in the month of April called Rising Hope, where we will look at a number of biblical passages about what it's like to have hope. How do you get it? Why does it matter in your life? And what is hope in general? Like, what does that even mean when Christians talk about their hope? Um, I am a big science fiction fan. I like listening to audiobooks of science fiction. I like watching all the science fiction movies. Um, and I'm a big Star Trek fan. Just by show of hands, how many of you would consider yourself like a legitimate fan of Star Trek? I just, okay, you guys are great. Okay, so. <laughs> Asa gave me the like, uh, the live long and prosper. It. I love you. Okay, so um, in Star Trek, or like any good sci-fi, um, the ri- sci- science fiction writing is a vision of the future or a possible future based on our assumptions and opinions about the world today. That's every good science fiction book you've ever read. It's a commentary on today, though it's a vision of the future. And that's really what hope is. It is a vision of the future that changes our life or says something about our life today. Uh, D.A. Carson is a scholar who studied these things in depth, and he made the comment that when you study American culture, what people believe these days, they fall into the different seasons, the different shows of Star Trek. The original Star Trek, like the um, William Shatner, Trouble with Tribbles Star Trek, uh, the old version, uh, is unique because it's a five-year journey, they say, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. And they studied all these different cultures, and they flew all over the universe or space or whatever to seek out these new beliefs and new cultures. But uh, commentators note that in the original Star Trek, the one thing that is surprisingly absent from all of these different cultures is a need for God. Well, that's indicative of a belief at the time with a lot of people in America that eventually as technology improved and as our culture modernized and as we eventually became more and more progressive in the way of, of benefiting each other and living in peace, that we would live out of or, or work, out of, uh, work our way out of a need for God. And that was a belief at a time. But then people started paying attention long enough to notice that the more technology, the longer our lifespan, the more, uh, you know, the, the, more prosper, um, the more we prosper in our society, the more we still need hope. And so uh, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, uh, TNG, that stands for the next generation, all the other versions of Star Trek are essentially a bunch of different episodes digging into people's religious beliefs or moral beliefs. And so every other version of Star Trek is... Uh, been penetrated by this need for differing religious beliefs or differing hopes. I think uh, the same thing is true in our society today. We need hope, and I think most people know it. Uh, For those of you who have kids that are teenagers, you know, the number of people who are hospitalized with psychiatric disorders is spiking like crazy in Generation Z, young people. Uh, The numbers of people uh, clinically depressed went up quite a bit with millennials. People who are elderly, like uh, in, in any elderly stage of life, are uh, kind of plagued with the questions of meaning or their worth in life. Sometimes you get to middle age or you get to the end of your 30s and you've got these same needs for hope because you have plans and hopes for your life, but you're not sure if they're going to pan out. Whatever it is, if the material world is all we have to live for, then it's a pot- there's always a potential that you could lose it. And so if your house, your family, your job success, whatever gauge you kind of use to, to have hope, If it's gone or there's a threat of it, you're always going to be in kind of hope crisis. If you're in search of hope, like a penetrating, life-changing, long-term hope, then 1 Peter 
is uh, something that you can use. Peter is basically uh, providing, in his first chapter of his letter to the church, uh, to a church that's suffering, this jam-packed one run-on sentence about how to have hope. And Peter's going to tell us this. If you are in search of hope, you can find it by looking back, looking forward, and looking in. If you're in search of hope, look back to God's saving work in the past. Look forward to how God has uh, promised to save us in the future. And then today, look into what it means to be a sinner saved by grace, what it means to believe the gospel, what it means to have hope today. So if you're in search of hope, or if there's even a part of your life that has a worry and a fear and a nervousness because the things that you are trusting in might leave you one day, and therefore you are in need of a lasting hope, then look back, look forward, and look in. Let's read our passage starting in verse 3. Peter writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest of care, trying to find the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed that is coming. So, we look back, we look forward, and we look in in search of a living hope. And that's exactly what Peter talks about in verse 3. He's saying, in God's immense, amazing mercy, church, church that's being killed on, the, on a daily basis, church that's having your, your jobs taken away, your possessions taken away, your families maligned in your towns, church that's been suffering and persecuted on a daily basis. In God's great mercy, Peter writes, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's given us a living hope. That is what we need. When, when Christian hope talks about hoping in the future or hoping in God and set your hope on Jesus, it's not just a wishful thinking. It's not just saying, like, I hope when I die God will accept me and love me, or I hope when I go to heaven. Or sometimes if somebody asks you, hey, are you a Christian, sometimes our answer is like, well, I'm trying. But, but that's not hope. That's like an effort. That's, that's not a, a born-again hope. That's like a, a workspace hope. And I hope if I'm good, then I feel like God has accepted me. That's not a, a sure future of real living hope. When the Bible talks about hope, it is saying there is a concrete future that we have in Christ that is not only proven to us because of Christ's resurrection, but because of the character that we see in God himself, that he is a God who saves. It's like God is at his best when he is saving souls. 
when he's redeeming us, when he's working in the world to create joy and justice, and that that is the redemptive history in the past, a reflection of the future that we have. When, when the church talks about hope, when the Bible talks about hope, it's saying you have a concrete salvation today from a God who has always been saving and a concrete future that you can take to the bank every moment of your life. So let's look back, forward, and in. Paul is, I'm sorry, Peter is basically saying that if you're in the midst of suffering and trials, you have to locate your life in the redemptive salvation story arc of all humanity. Like in verse 10, he's saying there were these prophets in the Old Testament, and the prophets spoke of a grace that was to be brought to you. It's, it's almost like he's saying the Holy Spirit empowered the prophets of the Old Testament. They didn't even really know what they were saying in full. But now you heard the gospel, like Jesus' life, death, resurrection. Then the gospel came to you. Somebody mentioned it even to you today. Somebody mentioned the gospel to you. Somebody spoke those words into your life. You heard them. Your mind said, wow, God loves me, wants a relationship with me, wants to forgive me. You responded in faith to the gospel and you're saved. Now your life is a part of the redemptive story arc of God, that the prophets were writing about a day that you would come to the Lord, that you would be saved, that you would have a living hope. And if you're suffering, you have to locate yourself into the redemptive salvation story arc of all humanity. The garden, the fall, the promise of redemption, the kings of the Old Testament that pointed to a truer and better king in Jesus, the prophets that spoke of a truer and better prophet in Jesus, the sacrifices that spoke to a truer and better sacrifice in Jesus, the buildings, the temples that spoke of a truer and better presence of God in our hearts in Jesus Christ. All of those things were telling of a thing that would happen, and now we're in the church age on the other side of uh, Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and now the gospel's moving in our life, and, and our job is to be on mission and to make disciples in this age, looking forward to an age to come where every injustice, injustice is replaced with justice, every uh, tear will be wiped away by God's hand, as Revelation 21 says, that we look forward to this future, and we're in this time now where we have suffered and we'll be suffering, but only for a time, and Christ will return, a grace that will come to us in Jesus Christ's return. But if you want perspective, which is the first thing you lack when you're going through trials and suffering and real loss in your life, Peter's saying, remember the story that you're a part of on a daily basis. Your life is not your own. Your life is a part of a history and a story that will be the main story arc that points to Jesus, his death, resurrection, and his future coming. I say that because um, that, when you're drowning in it, which is what it feels like when you have real loss and disappointment in your life, I mean, like sometimes you have dreams of your future and they, they don't pan out. And sometimes the, the marriage that you'd hoped for doesn't pan out. Sometimes the kids that you have don't pan out. Sometimes the career choices that you thought would pan out and create security or comfort or whatever you're hoping for in life. When, when you lose them, or maybe the plans you've had for your entire life, it's evident that you're not going to get those things. You have to have a, a, a perspective, a meaning larger than just your circumstances. That's what Peter is reminding us of. You're a part of a larger story. And interestingly enough, the gospel moves into your life, and that is exactly what we find out that the angels really care about. It says in verse 12 that these things, the gospel, these things, things that the prophets talked about, have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, 
Even angels long to look into these things. Don't you find that interesting? Such a weird passage, right? Like we don't know what the Bible really says. We don't, it doesn't tell us much about angels. We know they're eternal. We know here that they long to look into, they stare into, they pay close attention to the gospel being preached and someone going, I want to respond in faith and have a life and an eternity with Jesus Christ like in my life. It's almost like, uh, you know, like what else do you think the angels even do? Do you think they really care about the final four? Did the final four already happen? Did, did those things happen or not? I don't know. Whatever it is, like the angels aren't like, oh, there's only three seconds in a game of college school where they're trying to get a ball in a hoop and the angels are like, what? Like they don't care about that kind of stuff. What they care about is the gospel being preached and they, they, they watch you walking over to your coworker's cubicle and putting your arm on the edge of the cubicle and saying, how's your marriage? And then you get to talk and you say, well, Christ has been faithful to me and because of that, it fuels my faithfulness to my husband or to my wife. And then they go, ooh, interesting. And then they believe in the gospel. And then the angels are like, popcorn out of the bowl, clinking drinks, high-fiving, chest bumping, whatever. Like that's what the angels care about. They're celebrating the gospel, being like spoken from your mouth into the ears, into the brains, and someone just, like the Holy Spirit empowering someone to believe the gospel and saying, wow, maybe I should trash my entire plans in my life, rebuild my whole foundation, be born again, live a new life with Jesus Christ, and, and maybe, maybe I should just live it all again. Like maybe I should just have a whole new life, ditch the old thing, bring on a new thing with Jesus, and be with him for all of eternity. And then the angels are like, yes, that's what we care about. That's what we want to see on our little angel TV. I don't know if the metaphor carries, but that, that's like the story we're a part of, and the angels long to look into a story where your life matters even in the midst of pain because of the plan that God has for your life. And then secondly, we look back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's this main like moment in human history where any person, no matter whether you're kind of like feel like a junkie Christian that's not very obedient or you feel like you've kind of got it all together, all of us have victory, not because of our personal works and our personal performance, but because of a victory that Jesus has over sin and death. He died. He was buried. The people who followed him were like, man, I really put my hope in this guy, and now he's just dead behind a big rock. And then he resurrects from the dead, and everyone who follows him realizes the new victory that they have because of Jesus, and then they go out and spread the gospel. And that's like what changed the world. That's what created Christianity. Like resurrection, eyewitness testimony, gospel goes out, yada yada, Brea is formed, this building is formed, and then now you're here. That was a quick history, human history. But, you know, like that is the, the, not only the story arc, but it like has this climax to the story, or it has this like down payment of a future richness that we have in Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we're celebrating this April. That's what we celebrate at Easter. We have this thing that happened in the past that shows us that God is a saving God, a God worthy of, um, I'm sorry, loving enough to go to the cross, but victorious enough that we should put our hope in Him. And that thing happened in the past. We have to look back to it if we want to be reminded of what our hope is in. Secondly, we look forward to what He will do. We have an inheritance, this passage says. Look in verse 4. I'm sorry, look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. This is Christ's triumphant return. New heavens, new earth. He comes down and rights every wrong, makes the world into heaven, creating a new heavens and a new earth. 
That is the Christ revealed and coming that we're talking about. But in verse 4, it's not just this big event that's going to happen. In verse 4, we have an inheritance. We have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed to you in the last time. Now, I love my stick shift Ford Fiesta. That's the car that I drive. And uh, I don't want to say anything negative about it, but there are times when I think in heaven I'm going to drive a BMW. And I do love my car. I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful to get from point A to point B, but it would be nice to have an automatic transmission at least. And, uh, and we have a future material inheritance in heaven. Like, I'm sh- like heaven's material. Don't think white robes, everyone suddenly becomes white and blonde, and we're just kind of like floating around, and you always kind of go, hey, how are you? Okay, bye. And we're all just like ghosts that float around. When Christ comes, he's making a new heavens and a new earth. He's bringing heaven to earth, and so our future is material. And I don't know how that'll work out, but there will be some material nature to the future that we have in Christ. But our inheritance is more than that. It is that, but it's more than that. And it's hard because the grammar in the English and the, and the way that Peter writes with kind of run-on sentences in the Greek, the, the um, resolution of this phrase actually concludes our inheritance later, wherein it says that this thing will result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. Typically, we would read that passage to say, well, in heaven, we'll give God praise, glory, and honor. But the, actually, the opposite is true. One of the things that we have in our inheritance is the praise, glory, and honor of God to us. Does that seem weird? Okay, so here's how it works as a Christian. When you become a Christian, you put your faith in Christ. He is your Lord. He's your Savior. On the cross, Christ took the punishment that you deserve for your sin, but He also gave you the reward, the relationship, the identity that only He deserves. As the perfect sacrificial Son of God, always obedient, always glorifying God the Father, He is the only one who is deserved of eternal fame and glory. But when we become a Christian, we see Christ on the cross taking on our sin and giving us His identity. That's the substitutionary atonement. That's the reward of being a Christian. You didn't earn it, you got it. That's why it's a grace. That's why it's a mercy and a new identity. So in heaven, the inheritance that you have in your future is praise, glory, and honor from the King of Kings. What a reward. Let's do some application. When you think of your life, how much time, energy, money, emotional uh, you know, input do you put on a weekly basis to receiving praise? from people that that matter to you? Like, how many decisions have you made in the last year that are pretty directly resulting just, or or you desiring praise from other people? How about glory? How much money, how much work have you put into, in the end, giving your heart some sense of glory and meaningfulness? How about honor? How many decisions have you made in your life as you think through your life that you wanted to be honored, recognized, given some level of status? I mean, gosh, is that 80% of my life, I think? <laughs> There's a lot of our lives that, that are devoted to receiving some level of praise, glory, and honor because our heart is meant for that. But we have that in our future. This is how it really matters to become a Christian because when you live every day with a living hope for the resurrection of Christ, now you're able to say, you can like me or not, I'm not going to be crushed. Like I can face rejection or I can even face failure in my life. 
But it doesn't have to go to the core of who I am. It doesn't have to shape my identity because my identity is tied with Christ. And my future in Him, the inheritance that I have that I will receive, I'm receiving it kind of now, but I also will receive it in full in heaven, is praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. What an identity-shaping future that we have in front of us. And now we're free to live our lives today, knowing that that's in store. That's an inheritance. You know, you're a, you're a trust fund kid when it comes to personal acceptance, love, and grace. And you know you're going to get it at some point. That's our future. Secondly, this inheritance is not, it's not only permanent today, but it is protected for you in the future. And I want to make this point very quickly and as clearly as I can, so track with me. But in verse 5, it says that we are through faith shielded by God's power until the coming salvation that's ready to be revealed. We, through faith, are shielded by God's power. God's power probably does direct negative circumstances away from your life to protect you, but that's not all it's talking about. It's saying through faith in Jesus we are shielded. It's almost like to the extent that you believe in Christ in your daily life, to the extent that you take hold of the living hope that you have in Jesus Christ in your future, you will then be shielded. And doesn't that make sense? Like, uh, what does a shield do? This is my shield here. Okay. So a shield in the end has one purpose, has one job, to take the blows that would otherwise destroy you. A shield takes on punishment, it takes on a blow, it takes on a death blow that would otherwise just, you couldn't handle it. It would destroy you, it would tear you apart, but instead your shield takes the substitutionary atonement of a sword blow. Well, in Psalm 30, when it says that God is our shield and our defense, how true is it in Jesus Christ that God is our shield, that Christ took on our punishment on our behalf? He took on the penalty, He took on the pain of our sin so that we wouldn't be uh, destroyed by it. Because of that truth in our life as Christians, Jesus is our shield. And through faith in Jesus, it's almost like through faith in the shield, Jesus becomes your shield. And to the extent that you take up that shield when you go into work, when you take up that shield when your kids are charging at you, you got like a two-year-old and a three-year-old, and you're like, no, like you just block them away. You go like, I'm not going to worry today about being a bad parent because my identity's in Christ, and it frees me up to love my kids. Or you got kids who are teenagers, and you're like, no, I'm not going to feel like a failure even though my kids are 16 and they're all weird and hormonal. And you, you just go like, I'm not going to let the fear of failure hit me today because Christ is my victory. I'm not going to let my fear of not being accepted by people that I, that I respect, because they're going to hit my shield because Christ is my acceptance and my identity. I'm not going to feel like the suffering I'm going through today is meaningless because that, that fear, that bad thought is going to hit my shield because Christ is my shield and He's giving, giving me the meaning through my suffering today. That's what it means to have a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. It's like, it's not a dead hope. It's not a false hope, and it's not a temporary hope. It's a hope that's always with you and is always true of your life. And we have to look forward to this future that we have, but take it up on a daily basis. Like form your identity around the identity that you have in Christ and that you will have in full when Christ returns. So we look forward to our inheritance in Jesus Christ. Um, if you... Uh, if you have two employees at a, at a job, 
One of them makes $30,000 a year in Orange County, hard to live on. And one of them makes a million dollars a year, but they have the exact same job. You know, there's like a conveyor belt and they have to like take something off of a conveyor belt and put it on this conveyor belt and that's their job. But there's still like difficult things about work like any job, you know, if somebody's not doing their job right, they're squabbling, somebody makes you look bad in front of the boss or whatever it is. The person who makes $30,000 a year is going to say, why am I even doing this? You know, when, when suffering happens, when trials happen, the person who's not making a lot of money is going to say, I don't like this job. I think I'm going to quit. I think I'm going to go into something else. I'm going to start an Etsy business. Whatever it is, uh, they're going to grumble. But the person who's making a million dollars a year is going to go, what the heck are you complaining about? We're making bank. We got a million bucks a year. I can do whatever I want in life. I'll take this over here. I'll put it back from here over here. I'll crank a crank while I'm kicking something. Whatever you want me to do, like I'll do it. I'm making a million bucks a year. Everything else is put into place, like into context because of the worth of what you're receiving. And the same thing is true with suffering. That's why Peter's able to say, I know you're facing trials of many kinds now, though, though only for a little while. Because it all has to be put, our suffering today has to be put in the context of the actual eternal future that we have in Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, to close, uh, we have joy today. Even in this passage, there are Christians who have a next level kind of joy in the midst of their suffering because they are living out their hope in Jesus. So let's look into how it changes us today. In verse 6, 7, and 8, we see this contemporary joy with Peter's writing. It says, in all this, you greatly rejoice. That is a present tense statement. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a while you've had to suffer trials of all kinds. In verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter is noting that there is currently trials going on, and there's currently joy in the church. That's only possible if you have a living hope, that you could have joy and suffering together. Now think of it. If your joy is in your circumstances, and your life is really betting on the money thing working out, the investments panning out, the house staying intact, whatever it is, then your circumstances are your hope. And when your circumstances are good, you're happy. And when your circumstances are bad, you're miserable, and there is no hope, and you've lost everything, and you feel foolish and hopeless, and your meaning is gone. And you start saying things like, I don't even know if God exists. How could God be good in the midst of the pain that I'm seeing? But that's because sometimes we're guilty of having our hope be our circumstances. But here in the church, the suffering and the joy are happening at the exact same time. That's only possible if you have a living hope. Because you're able to look at your suffering right in the eye, dead in the eye. You're able to look at the suffering and say, I know how much I'm responsible for this. Or you're able to look at the suffering and go, there's a part of me that worships uh, something that when it was taken away because it was a temporary hope, now I'm really feeling the pain, but part of that's on me because I put my worship in the wrong things. Or sometimes you're able to look at your suffering and go, we're really praying about how God is still good because we just don't see why God would have this be a part of our plan. Where you lose your spouse or suddenly someone that you love gets sick or, or the, you did your part, you feel like you worked hard, but then it didn't pan out. Whatever it is, like, I'm not saying all suffering is your fault. I'm saying you can look at all suffering and have a real emotional connection to it in your faith. 
and not be ashamed of the fact that you're angry and frustrated and, and at a loss. I'm reminded of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where he, Gethsemane, where he is uh, honest about the fact that he's worried about going to the cross and sweating blood. I'm reminded of the book of Job where Job tears his clothes and he, gets, he screams and he's angry at God. Like, a living hope allows you to be honest, like honest, honest about your suffering and, and say the exact thing that you're thinking to God when you pray. Because your salvation is not brought to you by your ability to always say, PTL, guys, praise the Lord. I'm just praising God, even though you just lost your house. It allows you to be totally honest about what you think about the suffering in your life, but at the same time say, but I know what's true of God, that I have a future in Him. He's a saving God. He loves me, and He's going to see us through it. It's almost like becoming a Christian allows you to just have a bigger heart in general. It's like having kids or getting married. Like before you get married, you go, um, or at least, you know, like a lot of people say, I, I'm happier now that I'm married, but I'm also like open to being more angry and frustrated because there's a greater intimacy in your life when you get married. You're, you're happier than you ever be, but you'll never be as angry as when you fight with your spouse, right? Well, people say that about kids too, right? They go like, you don't understand how joyful it can be to have kids, but you don't understand how tired and bitter and frustrated you'll be when you have kids. Becoming a Christian is like that tenfold. The suffering almost kind of like can be more real in your life because you realize that the world is broken. This is only for a time. It doesn't need to be this way. God is better than this. How can this happen? But at the same time, you have a greater joy at the exact same time. You have a bigger life when you become a Christian and you have a living hope. You have a a bigger openness to be honest about hurt, but then open to joy. That is like the fullness of what it means to be a Christian. It's not always easier, but it's, it's more of a life. So we have joy. It happens at the same time as suffering when you have a living hope such that you take hold of that living hope. But it's not just that. If you look in verse 7, Peter uses the term refining. It's not just that suffering and joy work together. It's that suffering can actually fuel your joy. It says in verse 7, that these trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor. He's using the imagery to say, you know how gold, when you heat it up, it kicks out the impurities. The dross comes to the top, you scoop it away, and you're left with a pure piece of gold. See your suffering today as a refining fire, that things get hot, but they only serve to change you into the kind of person who is gold. Sometimes the heat can cause hardness if it doesn't refine you. It can cause bitterness. It can create a person who just withdraws from your life, from your job, from your family, from your marriage. Or it can refine you if you have a living hope. It's like the impurities are the parts of our heart that want to be self-centered, the parts of our heart that want to put our hope in things that are false or temporary. And sometimes the suffering of life pushes us to the only true source of hope. The suffering kickstarts the joy process because when suffering hits, as a person who has a living hope, you can preach the gospel to yourself. You can have your friends remind you of what's true of your life so that in the middle of suffering, you can go, I know it hurts. I also know what's true of my life and my identity in Christ that will never change no matter what my circumstances are. The suffering not only happens with joy, but the suffering kickstarts the joy that really fuels you for a life that has the kind of like perseverance that a lot of us need in our life. 
it almost trains you to stop putting your hope in temporary and false things, to really have it in the thing that will ultimately satisfy you. All of this is kind of brought to the forefront in my mind with a guy named Viktor Frankl. He's a psychoanalyst, and he was a man who died in the 90s, but he went through, uh, I think he went through three concentration camps during World War II. And the whole time he was there trying to survive through the trial of living in a death camp, he was constantly psychoanalyzing people because it's just what he does as a scientist. And he said in World War II, uh, in the midst of that process, that there were four types of people in the death camps. And they had different types and different levels of hope. The first kind of person, when they saw the sheer pain and the sheer level of suffering, became brutal and mimicked the suffering, mimicked the evil. And so they became hardened and they became evil themselves, trying to survive by pushing other people down. There was a second group of people that would have hope for a time, but then would give up. And he writes, many lost hope and lost their spiritual hold. Usually this would happen suddenly, the symptoms of which were familiar to most of us that were experienced camp inmates. The symptoms, I'm sorry, it would usually happen one morning when the prisoners would simply refuse to get dressed or washed or go out to the parade grounds for inspection. No statements, no blows, no threats had any effect on these people. They simply would lie there. They had just given up. Nothing bothered them anymore because they had no hope. There were people who would set a date, he writes in the book, in his book, no, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, that people would set a date and say, I don't know how I'm going to get through this, but I'm going to set a date, March 30, whatever. And they would live to that date. And then when that date happened, he noted in the book that they just would physically waste away. Their body decided to lose hope, and they just, they got sick from infection, and they would die. But he knew it was really shaped by their hope. There was a third group of people, he notes, that held on to hope, saying, if I can survive, I'll get my hopes back. He says, if they survived, they would get back their health, their family, their professional achievements, their fortune, and their standing in society, and that it would be restored. But after the liberation, after the war was over, many of them went into depression, committed suicide, or uh, took on alcoholism because none of the things that they got back were able to make up for the suffering that they had seen or the pain that had been caused them. He says that only a few prisoners didn't cling on to status, health, family, but they had what he calls an inner liberty, a full inner liberty. And they obtained a strength that was brought about separate from their outward circumstances. He says only few people could stay kind and keep their inner liberty. Those people uh, who had something to live for that was permanent and enduring. The quote is this, that life in a concentration camp tears open the human soul and exposes its depths and foundations. He was noting in the book that all of the suffering that they went through in a concentration camp were the normal things that happened in life. The problem is that they were all concentrated to this immense form of injustice and pain, and they all happened at once. He was, he was noting the different types of trials that just happened in life, and he's saying the really hard thing about it is that it was all unjust, completely unjust, but that it all brought all the world's trials into our lives at one time and in one circumstance. And everyone was together uh, feeling that same circumstance. 
And so he says, the concentration camp did one thing. It ripped open a heart and showed exactly what was inside. People who had a full inner liberty had this kind of meaning in their life. He says, life only had meaning in the concentration camps if we had a hope that even suffering and death cannot destroy. And as a Jewish person, he, he would say, our ancestors are looking down on us. Don't disappoint them. He said, you have to have a living hope. Just come up with something that cannot be touched so that you have a future and we can get through this together. How true is it in Christ, though, that we have a living hope? It's not put in a Savior who just died. It's put in a Savior who is living, who is resurrected from the dead. That's the kind of hope that we have. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you're not a Christian, you're not sure where you stand with God, my encouragement to you for this morning is to think about the things that you put your hope in. Like, do some analysis on whether the things that you really, when you think of your future and you envision a life that is worth living, are the things that you're putting your hope in really steadfast? Are they living? Are they going to disappoint you? Or are they temporary? And if you're a Christian, do what verse 13 says, with a sober mind, taking action, take hold of the hope that is to come to you in the return of Jesus Christ. See your future in Him. See Him as a God who has died on the cross for you to, to accept you and to love you and to, to make a plan where you receive praise, glory, and honor in full with the treasure and inheritance that is God Himself. And look into our lives today to take hold of that hope every day that you walk into work, every day that you wake up and think about your family, every day that you look at your finances, whatever it is that causes fear and stress in your life. Take hold of a living, breathing, like powerful, protected inheritance hope through Jesus Christ. Let's pray.